welcome to another episode of Money for Nothing, the podcast about music and capitalism. I'm Saxon Baird with a sandbacker. As always, today we are talking the BMI, also known as Broadcast Music Incorporated, the uh, massive performance rights organization um, has gone private, is it got sold for or is currently in the process of being in sold in the process of being sold for, q1 yeah, it seems like the one q1 yeah 1.7 billion dollars to the anonymous investment group called new mountain capital <laughs> and um yeah people are like yo what the fuck because bmi has essentially operated as like a non-profit organization for the better part of 80 years yeah <laughs> and is the very source of income for songwriters uh when it comes to like half the songwriters <laughs> like half the songwriters, like half the songwriters. Yeah, basically yeah uh i i, I yeah i think uh in, in 20 just to give you like a like a number but in 2022 bmi collected 1.5 billion in revenue um and distributed 1.47 in royalties uh, they include over 1.4 million songwriters and 22.4 million compositions. Anyway, so it's a it's a big it's a big fucking deal, and I think a lot of people are really concerned about what it means that this very important integral part of the music industry and in getting songwriters paid that has acted like a nonprofit for 80 years is suddenly. Um, going private and like uh gonna have investors and then like try to turn a profit and and um already ascap it's big um it's big cross town uh, competitor rival. is cross town rival is uh posting things like uh like private equity never wrote a love song or something like that Yo, their, i love their i love like ascap the idea of like ascap going on social media and dropping heat is really I mean, I guess it's where we're at in corporate America, but like, it's yeah, so ludicrous. It's it's, a, it's really rid- ridiculous. Like, ASCAP, we pay songwriters, not shareholders. ASCAP, not for profits. Profits. It's nineteen fourteen. Anyways, um, yeah. So we're like, this is a huge fucking deal. It's like right into the right right into the money for nothing slot. And uh, but we 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 want to go ahead and just like first like you know like remind everyone like a little bit like what the fuck BMI was and is and its history and then like kind of like try to figure out like what this actually means for the music industry like uh, near future like right now we can we can look into our uh our money for nothing crystal ball a little bit yeah i mean no this is so weird and like it's so weird because i feel like at bmi and ascap the performing rights organizations are so weird and when the news broke about a year and a half ago that ASCAP was moving from a nonprofit to a profit model. I think the general response was like, they can do that. Like that's a, yeah, that's a, that's a thing that exists as a, yeah, it feels like it's like, this is like breaking some law, but no, and break it was breaking. (laughs) It's breaking. Here's the thing. I think that's a really, it's breaking something and it's breaking (laughs) like, the very specific, incredibly jury-rigged set of institutions that, like, hold together the ramshackle 
nature of of the modern music economy it's like it's a bad it's like a bad plumbing system like a really bad plumbing system are you trying to say that like the harry fox agency is like <laughs> it's like a bad plumbing system but forget. it's like it was ostensibly a plumbing system and now it's like part of the plumbing system is like <laughs> no <laughs> our job is to put water through us but also to turn a shareholder profit which is like Sir, sir, you're, sir, you're a pipe. Like, <laughs> you don't, that's not, but as you're saying, it doesn't, it breaks like implicit norms, but not yeah. apparently laws or the consent decrees that actually structure all of this. So, yeah. Yeah, so so really quickly, just like a, a and we've covered this once before um in an episode called I believe what are consent <laughs> yeah. decrees. Um, yeah, which... <laughs> uh so we'll post that in the show notes um and and not redo this history that much. But basically, both ASCAP and BMI are organizations that collect performance royalties for songwriters, for publishing rights, which are different than, you know, the two general bundles of copyrights you've got one set of copyrights around recordings the actual sound recordings one set of copyrights around the intellectual property behind those recordings that's the music and the lyrics those are triggered in different ways and ASCAP and BMI emerge in the moment when uh, emerge from a moment when public performances of music are a central element driving the musical economy so we're talking like teens 20s here and basically a bunch of composers were like our songs are making people a lot of money um they're driving like the new york nightlife (laughs) and we're not getting paid a cent for them because a band leader will buy the piece of sheet music right that's great we get paid on that but then you know this is a moment when like classic smoke-filled nightclubs are appearing in New York for the first time. And they're like walking along, the composers are like walking along Broadway and being like, that restaurant and that restaurant and that restaurant and that restaurant all seem like they're making money. And they're all making money because people go there to listen to our songs. And we're not making any money from any of that. So they form ASCAP to try to deal with that. There's a a, a bunch of legal battles where basically it, because if you think about it, it's a weird set of like, they kind of, it's the, it, it it breaks a lot of like the relationships that kind of like unions in that like it's very hard to negotiate one on one, and so what is supposed to be a free market system, you actually do need collective bargaining of certain kinds in order to make this work. And ASCAP was very much doing that, and the question is like, is this illegal? Is this uh? like a cartel and eventually it gets um, decided by the Supreme court that no, this is legal. And that ASCAP is allowed to, to shake down <laughs> restauranters, um, which they do really happily and in, and often in fairly corrupt ways uh, for a while. And like the stories of ASCAP in the twenties and thirties are hilarious. Cause they like show up and they're like, you played six of our songs. And the, the restaurateur's like, which ones? And ASCAP's like, we don't have to tell you that, but you have to give us money. And <laughs> like this funny like combination of like Jewish vaudeville songwriters and goons is <laughs> like the ASCAP way <laughs> and has remained the ASCAP way more or less ever since. 
And then like tech <laughs> happens as it so often does in our world. Um, and the first crazy tech to happen was ready for this Saxon, the talkies. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Which disrupting like again, the industry talkies <laughs> disrupting the industry, the talkies. But like, if you think about the talkies, sound films as is so often true with new technologies the killer app of sound film is music right the first big talkie is the jazz is called the jazz singer um which is a whole it's about a rabbi's son pretending to be black so he can be american it's a really weird film wild <laughs> which is like um canceled we, a really weird film which is canceled um and <laughs> and like a whole other conversation for a whole other day but not on this episode not on this sh- yeah, podcast not on this podcast <laughs> but um is uh actually i think not even sound all the way through there's silent chunks and then there's sound for the songs and that's huge and then mu- movie musicals are like driving the the musical economy because the the relationship between Broadway and pop song goes like it's like it's like hand in hand for the early part of the 20th century. And so movie theaters are the next big ASCAP shakedown. And again, you get these big kind of intersectoral negotiations between the publishers and the songwriters and the movie theaters where uh, publishers and songwriters are kind of demanding like a per seat percentage of the overall costs like of, of uh, right so they're saying like you owe us four cents for every movie theater seat or something like that really big demands and basically the hollywood is like yeah yeah, yeah. sure 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 and then just buys <laughs> all of tin pan alley <laughs> which is actually um and this is another kind of aside but like heavy echoes of like amazon studios right or like the way that these net the way that Netflix rolled out stuff where they were they blew up by being a channel for other people's content and then eventually you're like oh we've got to vertically integrate because that's the only way to have control of um of our product and actually you don't need to fully vertically integrate and this is like i think like the key like you just need to own some of it enough that you can use that as leverage to 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 push down the prices everywhere else. So what you have is ASCAP and Hollywood and all that together. And then we've got the next big disruptive technology. It's, it's radio. It's radio. It's radio. It, it's yeah, yeah, the yeah. radio. Yeah, I figured. Which yeah, actually, yeah. like, it's crazy. Like, radio almost kills records for a hot second. <laughs> like, it's cheaper. You get endless music. I just listen to NTS. I don't write. I don't buy records anymore. I just listen yeah, to yeah, NTS. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it killed my record. Collection. I mean, right. It, and that was internet radio. Imagine the real thing. Um, no, but like, so you get radio, which also it's the kind of the streaming app of its day, right? For a low, low price, you get infinite music. You don't have control over it, but you get infinite music. Honestly, thank God. I like, I like that. I can relinquish control to some DJ in a uh, uh, converted shipping container in London. 
That's where I roll now. <laughs> it's just, just, just listening to shipping containers in London. Oh yeah, that too. Yeah, yeah, that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, preferably DJs in in London doing this or elsewhere. Yeah. Anyways, <laughs> yeah, big up, big up the London massive. Big up NTS <laughs> with its private equity investment. Yeah, yeah. We got, we anyways, got our, we got show. our eyes on anyways. you, pal. <laughs> <laughs> um, right. So radio blows up. You get massive networks. Um, and again, this is all like thinking about this is industries like NBC is also like an ABC um, are, are also making all the radios, right? They're these huge corporations. Oh, yeah, that that's are, right. I think we mentioned this. Yeah, in yeah, previous, yeah. yeah. huge corporations that are constructing stuff, um, making records, making radio players like they're vertically integrated, enormous um, multinational. Can't wait for the uh, spot of the Spotify phone. <laughs> they called that an iPod, actually, um, and it was sick. <laughs> and so you get basically this massive conflict between, more or less, between two industries. Uh, I mean, so it, the the connection between ASCAP and Hollywood is a little bit more diffuse than the connection between the radio stations and what turns into BMI. But basically, ASCAP starts doing their same thing to the radio stations and saying we give us x amount of money per play um and none of this is uh, really governed uh, this is pre-consent decree uh none of it's really organized um and you get this huge set of battles basically these like rate negotiation battles um about how much every single radio play is gonna they're gonna pay out to ascap and it gets really ugly. In fact, ASCAP at one point as like a negotiating tactic pulls the license. <laughs> so all ASCAP compositions are no longer allowed to be played on the radio, which means that they go to live bands, right? No, no, no. They, they but it doesn't matter if it's live or not. Oh, that's right, it yeah, can't sorry. be an yeah, ASCAP yeah, right. composition. So right. they just play like Mary Had a Little Lamb a lot. <laughs> like <Hell yeah. laughs> anything in the public domain like and an, they're scrambling. Like experimental you do art get piece. like big band versions of Mary Had a Little Lamb <laughs> because like they need something. Could be dope. <laughs> but yeah, so you get this you get these back and forth negotiations and eventually the radio networks realize like they need their own thing to like and they need their own performing rights organization so they can stop dealing with these assholes at ASCAP. Um, <laughs> so they start BMI, basically. Uh, like, they say they don't, like, exactly 100%, like, but they do. Like, they 100% start BMI. And you get complicated, more complicated dynamics we're not getting into for the sake of this episode. But, like, ASCAP's an old boys club. Um, it's got a really opaque structure, which we will get into a little bit in this episode, maybe. Um, but basically, like, it's founded by these songwriters, and how much all the different songwriters get paid out of a central pot is determined by, like, how much cultural value ASCAP thinks they all provide, not, like, how many songs are being sold, uh, partially because they don't have the which metrics Which turns on out, that. surprisingly, to be classist and racist. Yeah, and like <laughs> classist and racist and like the the set of Tin Pin Alley composers who started ASCAP are determined to be the most valuable cultural assets by the ASCAP board, which they comprise. They started. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I guess. Mm, oh, yeah, sure. Seems uh, fair. Yeah, yeah. It's 100% <laughs> fair. Yeah. BMI uh, in a search for music 
basically, I mean, I think this is a little bit overstated, but they do look to a lot of kinds of music that ASCAP hadn't been willing to license. So a lot of country guys end up on BMI. A lot of uh, uh, black performers are able to license stuff through BMI. Um, and so there's, you know, arguments about how the ways that that, like, that fight ended up democratizing music. But still, it's like it's corporate chicanery all the way down. It's like yeah. Like, the important point here is that like 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 BMI to this day. I mean, I guess it's just getting sold, but like to this day is owned by a network of radio broadcasters, partially <laughs> owned. Partially, yeah. It's or related. Which to. They're then yeah. Which those radio broad those radio broadcasters are the ones that are then paying back into BMI, who then pays the songwriters. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> capitalism is fucking wild. Dude. Well, it's capitalism, <laughs> and like it's also just the the ways in which like ca- this is like a, a a fascinating story of why like neoliberalism is an ideology and an ideological fantasy because like capitalism requires these weird systems, like the music industry, especially in the mid twentieth century, like given the ability to collect data, needed these weird systems to get to move money around. But it's not like an open... It's not an open market. It's impossible for it to be an open market. And then it's, of course, like once it's, yeah. everyone sure, gets sure. Their, their cut of the pie and everyone uses and manipulates their position within those structures for their own advantage. But like, it's a weird system of pipes as we've been saying that like structures all of this and that's before the government get involved gets involved with the consent decrees which bmi signs first i believe um and basically the government is like you guys can't there, there needs to be something resembling and this is really in some ways where they get their legitimacy from for the second part of the 20th century the government's like there need to be some sort of rules vaguely and they both signed consent decrees with the government that set up a set of rules that they're always trying to renegotiate and fight about that kind of makes these, and this is kind of the crucial thing for the, the rest of the conversation, the government dissent consent decrees, which are usually given to companies when they're being very, very bad, which, like, to reiterate, <laughs> these companies were. They were being very, very bad companies. Um, but, like gives them this stamp of approval. Like, this is going to be the structure of copyright royalty flows in the United States. And that these are at some level, in this weird level that it created over time, the consent decrees went from, like, you're bad and this is a punishment, to, like, the government setting up a system that really couldn't hold by any other means. And that kind of, go, you know, and kind of... Uh, crystallizes the configuration as it was set up at that moment and then kind of that carries on forward and they're still under it's they're some of the oldest consent decrees in the country they're from uh i think the late 40s early 50s um and just to be clear a consent decree is basically the government basically being like we don't want to make a law about this just do it or else we'll come down on your ass it's like a yeah, simple way of it, saying well, it yeah yeah and saying like you're clearly in violation of like all of these like various kinds of like usually like antitrust rules because like they're trusts like explicitly but the government being like but actually if we get rid of the trusts it's worse so we're gonna have these it ends up being like a weird special license like we're gonna license these two trusts to behave under certain sets of rules because the free market doesn't 
make like it, that idea doesn't make any sense in, in in this set of circumstances. Yeah, but I think that the so so what is so what so the consent decree is and the license is essentially that they have to offer like a blanket license. They have to offer so, so people so they, everyone can. So they can't be like yeah. So they can't be like you know. Uh, Duke Ellington costs 50, but like Woody Guthrie costs yeah. 20. And, and they have to allow people to license with them. There's stuff about rates. I mean, this is a whole, it's a whole nest of specificities. And BMI has like that, a tutorial. Like, yeah. Make it a vaguely fair playing field. Vaguely. Right. While vaguely. still, yeah. and this is important, and, and kind of as we think through like what this privatization of sale means, while still like ensconcing these weird semi-state non-profit semi-corporate actors as like the neutral arbiters and structures but like without actually like they're not neutral like there's no <laughs> there's no fair here there are these two organizations that are competitive with each other that are run by question mark that are kind of connected to question mark interests that like certainly through like the discussion of like BMI's relationship to the radio companies and like ASCAP's relationship to the original Tin Pan Alley publishers, like certain people are able to use their positions within these organizations to gain power and to pull money out in all the <laughs> unfair ways that the the uh, the music industry likes to move money around. And so there's this weird thing. It's like. <laughs> I don't even know what it's like. It's like if the, the the National Milk Council started selling cows. I don't know. It's so weird. It's such a weird system. And it's so weird that they were allowed to go private. And that's where we are now, being sold uh, under BMI CEO Mike O'Neill's uh, leadership, being sold for $1.7 billion to... Uh, like I said, new mountain investors, or the fuck it's called, who cares? Um, <laughs> and and of course, like that brings up a lot of questions about all the things that we've just discussed, which is who benefits, who gets the money, what's the motivation, who fucking knows? Like, um, and like honestly, like we don't really have a lot of answers yet. And so some of the questions put forth by a um, a number of songwriting alliances and organizations uh, artist rights alliance the black music action coalition music artist coalition songwriters in north america sag aftra they wrote like a joint letter basically with a number of concerns and of also course, like, also i think it's fuck yes yeah, sag aftra yeah yeah get it yeah. guys hell yeah get it yeah so they put forth like a number of concerns which uh i think are pretty obvious in, this, in what we're describing right now which is like wh who gets the money of the sale what happens to the representation of like the songwriters if it's in if the company is now based around making a profit and has investors who are expecting a return on those investments <laughs> like wait a minute what like how the fuck will our rates be changed <laughs> you know, and so what the one what we have seen is um oh and i think we should also mention also that Google's involved, or Alphabet, as we should say, which is also kind of like a strange, also addition to this. Which yeah, they're a minority stakeholder which like, now, so we don't know exactly how much. So we don't really have answers to any of these questions because we don't know. But one thing we did that has come out, which is kind of interesting, is that already BMI has put forth that they're actually increasing 
the cut that they take from collecting these royalties and then distributing them out. So they normally take a 10% cut and they've actually upped it to 15%, which is like, doesn't seem like a lot, but that's... Well, I mean, the songwriters the songwriters have been getting too fat for too long. Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, as All any those... songwriter will tell you, <laughs> they're just look. I just, I'm just, I'm so angry. Bro. These songwriters, they come in, they buy up brownstones, they gentrify neighborhoods, they like All these... just with their with their songwriting money, nine dollar lattes, guitars. Yeah, their nine dollar lattes and their nine thousand dollar Martin acoustic guitars, just ruining neighborhoods left and right. I mean. What they did to San Francisco is a travesty. <laughs> Clearly, the songwriters are to blame for that. Um, if you do not have a good uh, litmus test for sarcasm, you just that that was that was all sarcasm. Uh, <laughs> 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 uh, but yeah, and so we like so like I, we're kind of we're like here this right now this episode, and we're kind of like, I mean, obviously, I think it goes without saying we're like this probably isn't a good thing, <laughs> but also like we also don't want to um, suggest that like BMI is like was some like saintly organization that was benevolently like passing money on to this these 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 uh greedy songwriters as we've been talking about um but you know it, it has a shady history as well as we just illustrated but yeah but it is interesting it, it just doesn't seem like uh this isn't well, a better it's just turn. it's like it's the weirdest it's one of the it's one of the, like I didn't have it on my my music industry bingo card it's a very weird set of events I mean I, I do think it, it's maybe worth puzzling out a little bit. Like the going private, going going for profit to going private pipeline. <laughs> yeah. Right? And, and it's, But also think about the timing on this. Um, as we've covered extensively and as I am really, really looking forward to covering again, a <laughs> set of big... Big uh, finance capital had poured into songwriting for the last several years and um, currently isn't doing as well as it once did. <clears throat> Hypnosis. <laughs> <laughs> Hypnosis, yeah. Uh, <laughs> which uh, we're, we're looking forward to um, as a future episode. <laughs> but <laughs> for anyone who hasn't paid attention is that Hypnosis Funds is really having a lot of trouble and as people who have like had to read a lot of bullshit press releases over the past several years, like we're loving a you told we told turns you so and press, we love it. Turns out those press yeah. releases are bullshit. Yeah, it turns out those press releases are complete bullshit. As as yeah, you should always read them with with uh, your uh, your bullshit meter uh, while it, <laughs> um, going. But um, you actually have to turn down the the. Um, <laughs> The, the the sensitivity though on some of those because like otherwise it yeah, just runs into no, the red the whole good, time and you get bullshit distortion which doesn't sound good um but 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 thinking about the timeline here for a second they go for profit in this moment of like financialized interest in songwriters where it's also in like about a year and change ago so I, and I assume that like the mechanisms and wheels and plots and plans started going earlier, which means that like this seems like a decision that was made in what I would term the frothy times of like this is like a 2020 ass decision. <laughs> it seems like where there's a lot of weird money and there's a lot of like everything's going online all at once and 
And so the decision was made there that like it's possible to that the my gut and again this is uh, uh like this is just from my like reading of the situation is like it seemed like there was so much money pouring into this space that going private or so going for profit was a way to tap into more of it without like that the pie was growing so big that no one would notice you were getting a bigger cut of it basically and that they could do make moves to maybe and this might get into legal areas i don't know whether there's certain kinds of investments that they could get to and i think they actually claim this is like they were able to tap into sources of funding by being a for-profit company that they were unable to get to as a non-profit but the question yeah unfortunately like well the question still remains though like what like what how does that benefit songwriters in like any fucking way if the, the only way that the songwriters are making money is like through these royalties through like you know performance rights like, no, that's then, a really like, good what? question I'm, I'm, I'm like i'm struggling I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to think of like let's let's take it for just a second seriously like is there any way that we can think of where actually them going for profit could even at any level plausibly help the songwriters and like maybe it's spinning up See, for me for me it's like i think the the one reading through the bullshit of mike o'neill the ceo and his like what he's saying for me like the only thing that i could really like logically conclude was that this whole thing about how there's so many more musical touch points that perhaps in some way bmi invest into one of these like newer musical touch points and possibly even kind of like creating their own that would allow more plays for these songwriters you know but like yeah that's smart no 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 you're 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 right saxon that that's exactly it it's it's saying that bmi could enter into the (laughs) brave new world of basically like music tech of music tech and that somehow that it would a by basically being a player that had this collection of rights that were attached to it though like it is important and and in like a particularly damning one of those questions from from these songwriters associations they're like it seems like you're making money with rights that like you don't own like you own the right to license some of these rights in specific ways but like BMI doesn't hold the copyrights to those songs. It's just collecting and licensing copyrights for other people. And it's like, seems like it's behaving like it 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 has ownership over stuff it, it doesn't. But but I think you're exactly right that like the plan was to, I mean, maybe a little bit like the model of, of the payout that the record companies got from Spotify when it went public, right? That the, the record companies got a chunk when they originally, the major labels, when they originally licensed their masters to Spotify, they got a huge payout basically for free that went just to the companies. Now, like that then, for that to actually help songwriters, you have to assume that the for-profit company would then fairly distribute any money it made from these kind of maneuvers to the songwriters, which like as a CEO, I guess you could claim, but like my understanding of the history of capitalism is, is like, that seems unlikely. Yeah. I mean, there, there were this, there were some instances, which I don't actually have in front of me of, of like this kind of thing happening with like Sony and like other companies, uh, music companies where they, you know, 
earned some massive profit through some sort of like merger or whatever and like the some of them did distribute it out to like the artists and some didn't and, and all this stuff but but like no, I no, think, wait, just just uh, yeah. to touch on that though that's true and i and that's a good point and as you'll hear is part of the sale these companies are doing some of that and like again like the, the cynic asks is a which artists are getting that money B, how are they distributed? Because, like, as we know, and as you can see, again, from that that initial history of ASCAP, right? Like, big players in the industry themselves become, like, mini businesses, right? Like, if you're getting $100 million and you're giving some of it to Madonna, a chunk of it to Madonna because she's, like, a sub, a major subcontractor for you, it's different than, like, the artists in general, um, but no, but I think that's a really good point that yeah. there, there were some, some distributions of, of money from these big sales, but like, no one thinks that like out of the goodness of their heart, these companies are distributing this cash flow fairly. No, of course not. Or like yeah. they're not getting a bigger cut. Like, right. of, co- of course not. Right, right. But, but, but like, but actually I want to go back to a point though you were mentioning though about, about how one of the main concerns by the songwriters was that, you know, you seem to be making a profit off of what you don't own but actually it's like if you think about the valuation of the company like how did they get to like 1.4 billion dollar 1.7 billion dollar price tag and i think it goes back to what you're saying where it's like they're not valued at 1.7 billion dollars because they distribute royalties it's because of like the roster that they have of people right it has to be that like why like like you're not like buying up this company because of their like ability to like distribute royalties that doesn't that doesn't like earn you one point. It's because like Taylor Swift's on the roster, right? It has to be things like that, and it's almost like for me, maybe maybe this is the, maybe this is a related point, maybe not, but it, it it like just tangentially going to it. In you talking about that, I was thinking like in one way, it almost like feels like they're trying to play like UMG a little bit, where they're like trying to like we have this and we have that, we have a record label, we have a publishing, but you know like we're like and kind of have their tentacles in like various parts of the industry but on the other hand they also feel like they're trying to play like hypnosis except for the difference is that like hypnosis was actually buying these catalogs and actually had ownership over them but like bmi doesn't actually own these like whatever cat i don't want to say catalogs but like own these like contracts that they have with these with these songwriters they don't own the music so they it's don't like own it's, the music it, they but they own but that, the but contracts. That's, but that's playing. So yeah, they own the contracts. So that and that's playing into the valuation of it, right? But it, yeah. it's interesting. Yeah, it's really it's an interesting thing, and it's like. But then it, so that's why it gets. That's why you get back to this point of like, who, like, is going to make the profit? Because like Neil Young could sell half his catalog to Hypnosis and then reinvest in Hypnosis and like make money off of it, and it's like, is that going to be the case here? I mean, like, I don't know. Like, how does that work here? Like, (laughs) I guess it's minus the sale. I mean, there's two ways. There's two ways to think about it, right? Like, I think that's a really good set of questions. One is that they think, and I do not think this is the case, but one answer is they think that buying this and then having it for a long time and you can make some changes to squeeze some stuff and get a steady revenue flow from these, that this is a long-term good investment, right? That the general trend, and this is true, hypnosis was, you know, give it the devil's due, right about this, that like the overall payouts for publishing have increased. And saying like, thinking about this as like not a, 
right now play, but like a in 50 years play. Like we bought this now, it will be worth more in the future. And like, we can just get a steady revenue stream the whole time. That's one. That's one. That's one play. Though I don't think that that's like a that's major motivation. What, what, yeah, that's yeah. like that just seems like way too Warren Buffetty for <laughs> like anyone involved in the music industry, and that's because the music industry is filled with like is in some ways <laughs> the reason that Warren Buffett doesn't invest in record labels is that the music industry is filled with chicanery it's the reason that anyone can make profit is because they're like skimming i'm increasingly convinced is like the skimming is essential and the opacity is essential which means that like if that ever broke these may not be the sustainability of the business models are a little bit up for grabs um which means that like in order to make a long play investment you need to be like certain that like there won't be insane volatility or like a a a congressional investigation that's gonna tar you and feather you or like a celebrity doing something horrible that then you have to deal with or like any of the numerous things that like (laughs) constantly defines the history of popular music you need to be like none of that's gonna happen and this will be a nice stable investment like i don't know a lumber company and like it's just not and so it's it tends to be like when they get big money, it tends to be like weird, fast money, like bubble scam bubble stuff. Like, and that I think leads to the second reason why it has this valuation, which is kind of where I think a lot of stuff in the music industry is pointing to right now. And I think the touch points you mentioned is part of it. Um, but it's like, there's gonna be a lot of IP licensing. I mean, yeah, there already yeah, right. is, and there's gonna be a lot more IP but licensing in a lot more that. ways. Yeah, there's gonna be like just with tech that like currently actually works. Like, let me take that back because it doesn't work. Um, like metaversey stuff, I think is gonna happen not via, not via Meta, but like via Fortnite right like these these spaces online spaces in which people experience music are only going to grow and there's complex licensing and there's complex sync and just having like already set a large an enormous like half of the relationships with half of the ip producers in like set ways and legal precedents for blanket licensing and like negotiations with the government make make it might be really valuable in a lot of different settings especially if the government the federal government at some point let's say in 10 years looks at and this is like the real like crown jewel like looks at ai music ip licensing stuff and needs a blanket license because who knows what that training data is so in some ways a blanket license is the only way to do it and the federal government is like, oh, we could make a new set of organizations or we already have consent decrees with the IP, with with these two performing rights organizations that deal with much of the IP related to the performance of these, the performance of, of this material. And who's to say that like at some level, what a large language model 
is doing when it's like chattering to itself isn't a performance at some level if the only audience is the next like level of, of, of Transformers. I mean, let's be real here. When you press play on Spotify, and there's some precedent for this, when you press play on a track on Spotify, because of, my understanding is because of buffering, it's technically both a performance of the song and making a copy of the song. And so it triggers two multiple kinds of copyright. So like there's been a precedent for the creative application of exists and especially given like how hard it is to get laws through Congress. Creative application of existing copyright structures and existing structures within the music industry in order to like add another like slap another layer of duct tape on this set of pipes and like keep it going because making a new one is too complicated. Oh yeah, like I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, the point that this is a really great point is that like that uh, these so-called quote-unquote musical touch points are only going to be continued to fall into further and further gray areas around like which licensing royalty they're triggering, and yeah, you're going to need new either new laws or you're going to have to like yeah, like you said, slap some duct tape on it and like I guess having the funding to <laughs> to be able to i guess oh that that determines the valuation that determines the valuation of like bmi i think yeah. that's i think that's yeah, the thing sure. is that people are like this the odds of this being an influential the odds of bmi being an influential player in the next iteration of the music rights holding landscape if you were going to bet on like organize right it's not the worst bet actually that like BMI is going to continue to matter in some capacity. And then you start saying if you're alphabet and you're training data, right? You need training data. You've not just need training data. If you are, and let's make this like crystal, crystal clear. If you are any AI company in which you have just so happened to already have participated in what is probably the single largest act of copyright violation in the history of copyright. Okay, so there was this period of time for about a century where the U.S. didn't respect any European copyrights. <laughs> so that was also a pretty big copyright violation. But like in terms of depending on how you say what an instance of copyright violation is, like the number of interactions with copyrighted materials that, let's say, ChatGPT does... Even if it isn't allowed to reproduce it, like, it did in its training. So, like, all of these companies are going to have to deal with the fact that they've suddenly made billions of dollars with other people's data. And, like, if you're Google, if you're Google, like, having a, and this is quoting a Chris Castle article, who's a really... um good uh, uh observer a lot of stuff and now you potentially have a seat on the board a non-voting seat but as a major investor like a seat on the board that can't these tech companies have a lot of money that might very well be worth the price of the price of admission yeah no, like those are great points yeah 100 i mean i think that's that kind of unlocks like the reason why like google is even or alphabet or whatever the fuck you want to call it like is even involved in this situation like definitely like it, it's clearly got to be an ai thing and obviously the continuing 
ways in which new musical touch points and AI are falling into gray areas around these discussions of copyright and also just fucking how slow the government is in like responding or, to, or even understanding it. And so, of course, this policy is going to be shaped and understood or lack of policy is going to be like shaped by companies like BMI and Alphabet. And I also just think that it's important to think about the ways in which, and I haven't quite thought this through totally yet, but like the ways in which these new technologies aren't just going to like plop in the middle of like an, of a undeveloped field that was stolen from someone, <laughs> but like plopped in the middle of the thriving city that is now the internet that was also stolen from someone. I just assume that like all the internet was expropriated land that uh, like YouTube like is also a place where originally a massive act of copyright infringement that now is a major, major payer into the music industry um, and into songwriting publishing. And like that AI is gonna going to be like AI productions, however they end up functioning are going to be channeled through something like YouTube, which also is alphabet. Yeah, it's take, it's taking care of a headache before it happens. Basically, it's or, like look, it's or, or, or trying to. Table. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Which like like having maybe seen the issues it's run into, like these companies have run into in the past, involving issues around copyright. Like you say, like you just illustrated with YouTube. It's like, well, how do we just like, yeah, how do we head it off for the past? Basically, and that that definitely could be like another motivation there. Um, and like so maybe to like uh, kind of get into the uh the last the last part of this uh of this episode i did i did want to bring up uh the question around the question around the contracts that the bmi has with its uh w- with its songwriters because it does have an open door policy and i think that like tim ingram bless bless this man's heart for writing all wonderful things at music business worldwide um, <laughs> that we that this this show would be so much less without um, he wrote in like many of his articles, he was kind of like speculating on like what this could mean for BMI. And I thought the one really interesting thing that he brought up was about this open door policy that BMI has. So essentially like anyone can join BMI. Um, yeah, there's no like filtering system or whatever. Um, but that uh, just curious if like that would remain and like whether or not like BMI would continue to allow this open door policy or maybe it might start to limit the number of songwriters. And one thing he brought up was, of course, the 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 stat that gets repeated all the time, which is that like you know two point two percent of all artists on Spotify generate ninety five percent of all the revenue. Um, and he was actually even saying that at this point, like maybe like songwriters that uh, amateur artists, songwriters that generate like basically no profit whatsoever, BMI that actually and maybe. Uh, in a sense, like the administration that goes into even having these contracts with these like completely unknown non-profit like making no profit like songwriters actually is like costing more than 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 it's worth and I, and like it, it, i don't know i was just thinking about this and like i was just thinking like the ways in which like like maybe there would be either bmi would cut a lot of its songwriters or require like a certain like level of amount of streams or success or maybe there would be like they would kind of change the pay structure and then you know i and i was just thinking thinking about this like uh before this episode and how that could possibly you know if that would possibly be the case and i was just curious like what your what your thoughts on that would be I mean, so my, i guess my thing with that would be i mean I've, I've got a lot of concerns 
clearly about the sale and about kind of what could be done about it in, in that that just like you know these structures are not set up to be fair but people have almost like like uh, barnacles like built lives around them and found ways to make productive niches for themselves in relationship to them and clearly like situations where they go from bad to worse um bad to allegedly worse let's protect ourselves uh <laughs> uh like what what you can do about that um especially as like the major power players of the industry are girding up for whatever comes next it strikes me that that particular fear of like i could imagine maybe tiered contracts but i guess the thing yeah. about it is that like w- the thing about bmi is that as much as it costs to administer all these contracts a I wonder legally whether they could stop. B, because of the dissent decree. Yeah, yeah, consent decree. I, but I, yeah, I don't know. But right. but B, yeah, I yeah. actually but think it, that it's very hard to know who is gonna end up, especially in the kind of more grindy world of songwriting, who is gonna end up being a really big money maker. And I think a lot of people, especially, again, especially less musical artists, but like songwriters, like if you're like, you want to be a professional songwriter, like you get that, you, you get a relationship with BMI when you're 17 and 16 and first writing songs and first making the steps in the music industry. And like you could, you could, it could be, a decade plausibly easily a decade and this wouldn't wouldn't be crazy at all that after a decade of like grinding it out and not really having any big hits and not really making any money that like all of a sudden you make the right connection and then all of us your songs become enormous like that's not that's not a unusual story in the world of songwriting and it does strike me that like a pissing off all of those people (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like be it is it's in bmi and ascap's interest for people to be like oh yeah bmi like the lawyer answered the phone for me when i was 17 and now i have i'm writing for garth brooks and like yeah, yeah. they've got my back still and like the amount of additional money it would take to do anything like accurately sorting artists seems like would cost more than continuing open door policy, but that's just like off the top of my head. Yeah, yeah, no, no, man, I, I generally agree with like the points that you made there, and I like I, I, yeah, I, I'm totally aligned with that. And also, I think that talking about all this like diversification of musical touch points, I think we could also talk about how this is increasingly niche musical landscape. Yeah, where it's like there's just everything's you know maybe because of the ability for us to sort of. Yeah, shape our playlist and like what we want to listen to and everything. It just you know, of course, yes, there's the algorithm and all that stuff. Whatever, blah blah increasingly blah. Increasingly, like and it's, increasingly atemporal. I think that's the other thing yeah. that that scrambles songwriting stuff even more, which is like, yeah. um, so I'm a longtime fan of of Numero Group, right? Who does in many ways the Lord's work uh, of like reissuing, especially the the soul reissue stuff, where they're like this label. If you, you don't know them, you should check them out. You. Uh, they, they do amazing like reissues of like various kind of long forgotten soul labels um, 
and, and and a bunch of other music too but like what's funny is after like following you know like longtime subscriber and reader of the numero group newsletter is like they get tiktok hits now right like they're reissuing like weird nine and and things pop up and then like they're re- all of a sudden those compositions i mean the question of like how tiktok payout structures is a whole other question we're, like, we're very much not getting into in this episode but like the sense of of that that the atemporality of the musical landscape makes it again harder to understand how valuable a song composition is to my so like yeah so there's literally no it's actually more it's, there's more of an incentive to like keep that open door policy and keep these like because you really can't tell you really can't tell now there's so much like niche there's so much like the tech everything's so atemporal it's happening so quickly it's like you never know you might as well just go ahead and like keep that open door yeah i mean like cast a wide net for me i think maybe to 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 to, to wrap stuff up for me i, I want us to, to go back i think to the initial ascap impulse which i've been thinking about for for, for many years um both like in the show and as part of a part of my like uh academic research and like that i've really <laughs> come around to at some level um because if we think about all of this especially this like large-scale landscape stuff as in some ways like sectoral negotiations right like how are industries going to be sorted up who's going to own what how are they going to be integrated how is the money going to flow that actually that initial ascap impulse of like we're going to like semi-illegally we're going to semi-illegally, like, just demand money from other sectors. <laughs> yeah. Like, is actually be- because, because at some level, we know those sectors are as good as they are because of music, but the value chain simply can't be traced very effectively. And I would say that even, I mean, maybe the metrics now finally could potentially exist, but like there's so many layers of intentionally constructed opacity that that is simply never going to happen, right? Like maybe if you were a social scientist, you could figure out how much economic value various elements of YouTube produce, but like you're never getting those numbers because what they don't want you to see is how much money like these companies are taking from these value streams. And so that sectoral shakedown approach is actually like kind of awesome. I think (laughs) like restaurants, (laughs) you're making money from our music. Give us some like radio. You're making money from our music. How much money? We don't care. Give us some like that, that kind of like, um, and clearly then how it filtered down was, was a (laughs) deeply problematic process that cut all kinds of people out of the story. But I do think that at some level, like saying the music industry is its own thing and, and is, or maybe like this is my gut, right? I could be wrong, but this is my gut that a world in which the music industry says we're musicians, we have these sets of practices, we have these sets of values, we have these sets of shared experiences. This is an industry and like we're demanding money for music rather than like the music industry as an element within a broader portfolio of other you know tech uh, video streaming social media back in the day a big radio company like when the music industry is self-defined and then it can take those like hard-nosed like 
that hard-nosed combination of like lawyers and goons and go out and shake down other industries like actually it pulls more money into music and then whether that money is really evenly distributed within music which like by the way it's not whole other question but at least it's in the music ecosystem and so like i'm kind of into this like sectoral shakedown of the original ascap and given that i am concerned and i think everyone should be concerned about Given the set of really important negotiations that are going to happen over the next decade or so throughout the creative industries, but I think that music is often a, a, a pretty intense bellwether. Given that, like having a major player that could be part of the music industry, maybe not be like moving out of that orbit a little bit, like be part owned by alphabet be like a for-profit tech company vibes like that just strikes me as a development that makes that like we need to get ours mentality less likely and like potentially pulls a major leverage point for the expression of that that mentality uh, really against is the right word against other industries makes it harder to like uh, generate you mean it makes it harder to actually like like this sort of like we need to get ours like swagger mentality that maybe we see from like you know most illustrated by like umg probably like you it that you think it, it actually lessens it when now that it's like going private interesting yeah yeah that's super interesting yeah i like that i think that's a good point to end on but i i'll just i'll just uh I love, I love, I just want to say that I really do love this, this take because, um, you know, we, we like to, I, I like to call him, uh, uh, I like to call him daddy, but, uh, <laughs> UMG boss, uh, Lucian Grange, there is something kind of, kind of really, uh, awesome about his, <laughs> just like the way the UMG operates. And then if you think about it, like, you know, what's the one thing that probably in the last like five, 10 years that like songwriters and musicians complain the most about, and it's like Spotify, right? But you know who has like like is casting a large shadow over like and can put the squeeze any fucking time they want on Spotify, fucking Lucian Grange, <laughs> and like UMG. I mean, am I wrong there? You know, so I don't know. I like I I kind of do like this point. It is kind of it's it's a bit of a funny point, but I I do I do like I do like that. Um, but I will say uh, to, to wrap up that um yeah, the one thing we do know about this merger is that. The very cash-strapped iHeartMedia is getting $100 million from it, which we, well, thank God, man, because, you know, they really need, needed that money, right? Anyways, on that note, uh, we'll wrap this up. Um, music by Bird Language. Uh, we have a newsletter, but we don't really, really don't write it, but we're going to pick it back up, uh, hopefully. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. We'll see how it goes. Yeah, so subscribe. Um, Substack, moneyfornothing.substack.com. And, yeah, we'll catch you next time. Bye.